Today, we are joined by investigative journalist James Corbett again. Welcome back to Antiantipoden. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back here. Yeah, and thank you for taking the time. I know you are busy and you have hundreds of thousands of people following you on James Corbett's... Uh... CorbettReport.com. Yes, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> thought there was something wrong. And you had that website since 2007 and you post videos, uh, podcasts, articles and so on. And um, this time we saw an article series called The Weaponization of Psychology. And we are really interested to find out what you found out when you studied that topic? Well, uh, sure. I, I I found out a lot. And that was surprising to me, perhaps, because I have been studying this subject, maybe not intensely studying it, but I've certainly been um, thinking about it, learning tidbits about this subject over the years. And I realized at some point that there is enough here for a rather comprehensive series, perhaps at some point, some sort of documentary could be put together from this information. But I started out writing it as this series of articles. And I discovered a lot of things along the way that I didn't know directly. Um, things that I could have inferred or or seen. Um, but when it really helps to put them together and to paint the picture. So just broadly speaking, this series consists of four different articles. And they go through different aspects of the problem that I think we are facing, as well as hopefully pointing towards something like a solution to the problem. Um, the first of these is called the weaponization of psychology. And it looks at the idea that psychology and the, the, the profession of psychology, the study of the human mind, is not just some uh, neutral tool. Um, it is in fact a, well, it at any rate can be wielded as a weapon, a weapon of control or coercion against the masses. And that is, as I argue in that case, that is exactly what has ultimately developed out uh, of that for a number of different reasons. Uh, the second part of the series is crazy conspiracy theorists looking at the the pathologization of what I would call conspiracy realists, people who are looking into the ways that power actually operates in society, asking questions about power and uh, how it is wielded. Uh, those people are often first of all, labeled as conspiracy theorists, and then pathologized. What is what is the matter with these conspiracy theorists? Why do their brains malfunction in this particular way? Which is probably, as I gesture towards at the beginning of that article, something that you've seen in a million different articles. Um, that's one of the favorite things they like to write about is, what is wrong with conspiracy theorists' brain? Why do they think of these things? Um, so I, I address that issue. Yeah, and we saw that in Norway too. They had... Yeah, you just show many examples, and we have seen those examples in Norway too. How to speak with a crazy conspiracy theorist? Exactly. So how can you reach their brain if it's if it's still there? Exactly. So, yes, yeah. talking about it as if it's some sort of, as if it is a pathology, or at any rate, some sort of subspecies of human being. And at the first level of analysis, or at least at first, that is silly, but not particularly threatening until that starts to be employed essentially as as uh, a weapon that can eventually be enforced as an actual psychiatric diagnosis. And I go through, for example, the idea of corona insanity 
in that article and where that comes from. The third article in the series then gets into projections of the psychopaths, which is looking at the uh, the question of, okay, well, if there are powerful elitist interests that do conspire with each other to expand and maintain and expand their power, then how would we how would we pathologize the types of people who have created the system, the world that we live in, which clearly has, I, I think, probably most of your listeners could identify, some problems with the world as it exists. So how would we turn turn the tables, as it were, not the crazy conspiracy theorists, but the crazy conspirators. And I look at the question of psychopathy as a potential explanation for why it seems we live in a, uh, a cacistocracy, ruled by the worst. Why do the worst types of people tend to rise to the top of the financial slash corporate slash governmental power structure? And I argue that that is because, essentially, it is largely a system that has been created by psychopaths and or sociopaths uh, for the purpose of elevating uh, fellow psychopaths and sociopaths into those positions of power. And then the fourth part of the series finally brings it home by talking about, well, what can we do about this problem once we have identified it? If we have correctly diagnosed the problem, and if there really is this problem of psychopathy and sociopathy that is warping warping the world around us in and in fact making us act in ways that are contrary to our better instincts shall we say then how do we counteract that so i go through that in the fourth part of the the series so as you can see it's a pretty it's a pretty voluminous series it covers a lot of ground and even then i'm sure there is a lot more that needs to be said on this subject but i thought i thought that was a good start anyway mm, yeah and there were many many interesting things in the articles and especially one thing that I noted, uh, the first director general of the World Health Organization had a specific goal. Can you please tell us about that? Right. So we are talking about George Chisholm, who, um, as you say, was not only the uh, the first director general of the World Health Organization, he also was a, uh, a person who helped to spearhead something called the World Federation for Mental Health, which probably most people don't even know ever existed. Um, but in uh, 1946, uh, a lecture that he gave under the title The Reestablishment of Peacetime Psychiatry was published. And this is one of those gems that I'm talking about in these articles, things that I hadn't known about before I started writing these articles and putting the research together. And I would really suggest that people, I do link it obviously in the article, so people can go and read this for themselves. And I suggest they do. Don't take my my characterization for it or anyone else's characterization for it, go read this document for yourself, because it is rather remarkable. Um, but if I were to sum summarize what he is saying, well, he starts out by positing something of a Hobbesian kind of dilemma, where it's a war of all against all, sort of worst aspect of human nature, and perhaps understandably coming out of World War II, uh, and so soon off uh, off the heels of World War I, uh, Chisholm is looking at the, uh, the the problem of warfare and how are we going to avoid this problem in the future. And in his reckoning, um, humanity has 15 to 20 years. Keep in mind, again, this lecture, I believe, was delivered in 1945, published in 1946. We have 15 or 20 years before the next world war inevitably happens. And when that happens, um, there will be a, a couple of options on the table. One is essentially to... Uh, to essentially acquiesce to the enemy and become slaves, 
or to become ruthless, bloody killing machines that will kill everyone on sight. <laughs> and then he says, but actually, there's a third option, which the third option ultimately ends up being using a cadre, a, 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 I don't know what else to call it. Yes, a cadre of psychiatrists. He said there would be a necessity for one to three million of them <laughs> to, to essentially retrain the public mind uh, to make to make people essentially not the types of people who would go and wage war. Well, how do you do that? What does that actually involve? Again, please go and read this. But he explicitly says that we have to ultimately overcome the concept of morality and that there is good and evil in the world. That is the big stumbling block that is holding humanity back and making us these war war war-making type of beings when when if we get past morality and past this idea that there's good and evil and all of that these silly superstitions as he calls them and oh all these religious people with their ideas and all of that once we discard all of that then we'll be able to progress and mature people will will reign and will not war wage war on each other um, so again, how do you go about doing that? Well, he, he talks about the creation of this cadre of millions of psychiatrists that would be needed to, as he say, even prophylactically treat people for their, their immaturities and, um, essentially brainwashing and, and, uh, techniques of psychological manipulation. He said these psychiatrists would have to be trained essentially as salesmen to be able to overcome the resistance of all of these yokels who undoubtedly are going to resist um, this idea. Oh, you're going to get away, get rid of all of morality? I, I, I think that might not be a good idea. Oh, don't worry. These psychiatrists will teach you. So it's a really, it's a truly breathtakingly crazy idea and proposal. And I suppose if you were being generous, the only thing you could say about it was, well, it is coming right out of World War II and people were obviously kind of concerned about the way humanity was going and the atom bomb and all of this. Um, but even having said that, it was a crazy idea. But unfortunately, that idea didn't fall on deaf ears. He succeeded. Yeah, it was taken up by by someone in the British military. Um, uh, specifically, Colonel John Rawlings Rees, who was the first president of that aforementioned World Federation of Mental Health and the chair of the Tavistock Institute from 1933 to 1947. And that, that name probably rings a bell for conspiracy researchers in the crowd because the Tavistock Institute and its uh, its its machinations have been written about at some length by various researchers over the years, shaping the human mind and other such things, our concept of humanity. But anyway, this British military colonel, um, who was a, uh, also trained in psychiatry, talked about the need to um, create a strategic plan for mental health um, that he said, uh, uh, after claiming the psychiatrists of this council can justifiably stress our particular point of view with regard to the proper development of the human psyche, even though our knowledge be incomplete, i.e. even though we don't quite know what we're talking about, we can tell what, what we need to do. And then he says that, uh, the, the point will be to create very much in line with Chisholm's idea, this team of Psych psychiatrists and or psychiatrically trained professionals that would, quote, permeate every educational activity in our national life. And he goes on to talk about how we have already made a useful attack upon a number of professions. The two easiest of them, naturally, are the teaching profession and the church. 
the most difficult are law and medicine, and if we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. So he's literally, I'm talk, coming up with a strategic plan for mental health that is about infiltrating these various institutions and inserting people who will uh, essentially enact Chisholm's vision, presumably, of this cadre of psychiatrists trained in the art of sales who would be able to overcome resistance to the idea that we need to go beyond good and evil. It just, it sounds as... It, it really is as crazy as it sounds, and uh, no amount of me explaining it to people will, will convince them of that. I really hope they would go and read the documents that I link here. But yes, essentially, we are talking about the weaponization, the militarization of this idea of shaping public perception, shaping the human mind, essentially, to make it more pliant and pliable uh, for the purposes of a benevolent ruling elite who only have our best interests in mind, or so they say publicly at any rate. Yeah, and I would say the, the, that idea won because I find today that many people say that uh, most people are basically good and they are trying their best. And like it's for many people, it's like the concept that people don't have good motivation is not there any longer. How, how do you see it? Yes, I think there has been a number of ways in which the public has been um, warred upon in at certainly in the past few generations. And the effects of that are the easiest, I think, the easiest part of this to document because it seems to me incredibly obvious. Um, as I've pointed out before on my podcast, if you go back and you watch the types of interviews that were conducted, the type of public discourse that was at, at any rate televised, recorded, filmed, broadcast to the public, say, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, the, it, it, it is self-evident that the discourse was on a much, much higher level than what takes place today. And there, there are different reasons that you could posit for that. For example, perhaps back in the 1950s, there were certain standards that uh, when, when you have film stock that you have to invest in in order to film somebody on the street doing an interview or something, you're not going to waste it on so, uh, no, an inarticulate person who can barely string together a few words. You're going to look for someone who can actually represent themselves fairly well. But uh, uh, most people uh, dressed properly, speaking in grammatically, Co complete sentences that flow from one to another, it, 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 that actually seems like it's not so easy to do these days. There has been a mental impairment that I think the public has uh, undergone in recent generations, and there may be a number of reasons for that, some of which may be biological, chemical. Um, uh, the introduction of fluoride to the water supply and uh, the, the concomitant uh, decrease in articulacy, ar the articulacy, <laughs> to coin a word, of the public, even even myself, um, unfortunately, an example of this. Um, I, I think there may be some uh, reasons for that, but also the uh, the ways that, as, as Colonel Reese was writing about in the 1940s, yes, the infiltration of the education system itself in order to essentially dumb down the public. And that has been do documented by a number of researchers. For example, Charlotte Iserbit, The Dumbing Down of the American Public, I believe was the name of her book, or John Taylor Gatto, a decorated, uh, honored uh, teacher, um, voted teacher of the year in New York State, etc., who eventually had to, had to quit his job 
because he was sick of indoctrinating children in the indoctrination system that uh, passes for schooling these days. Um, so there are a number of people who can attest to the ways that the education system itself has been turned on its head and used uh, to indoctrinate uh, generations of pliant and pliable, well, ultimately, industrial workers was what the education system was originally geared towards, the one that we are operating under today at any rate, with the institution of classes organized by age, with a teacher at the front who directs the activities and tells students what to think about and when, which is regulated by the ringing of the bell. Um, all of this was essentially to condition and habituate children into work at the factory, uh, life at the factory. Um, and that hasn't changed, even though most children are probably not being trained to work in factories these days. But that is essentially the same type of education system that we are continuing to use. And I think it has demonstrable effects on our ability to, to think, to reason, to engage in high-level discourse. And if there is a concerted attack on our ability to, to even to even discuss and and talk and think about things at a high level. What, what does that, imp what, what is the reason for that? Um, as I say, perhaps a hundred years ago, it was simply to condition children to become pliant and pliable workers for the, uh, the uh, factory system. But these days it doesn't seem to be based on that. So I think there is, there is an ongoing and concerted attack on the public mind, essentially, that is going on from a number of different factors and vectors, but um, it combines to leave us in a state of mental, I won't say servitude, but at any rate, um, dependency. Um, most, even most adults these days tend to be very much looking toward outside external factors for motivation, for goal setting, for, uh, for approval, um, for uh, the ability to to um, essentially grade grade their work on some level, and because people are not as self sufficient or independent minded as perhaps they were a few generations ago, it certainly makes them much easier to rule over as a population. Which, to my mind, is probably more along the lines of what the Chisholms and Reeses of the world were trying to set up in that post World War II era. Mm. Yeah, and you believe people should look uh, closely at their leaders, that there's quite a bit of psycho psychopathy there. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? Right. So I think it's first important to understand psychopathy itself and to know that it's still, of course, there's a lot to be learnt about this subject and there's still a lot of debate about classification of this, etc. There are some some standard sources that get cited a lot. For example, uh, Dr. Robert Hare, um, based, I believe, at the University of University of BC in, Victor in Vancouver, I believe. Um, but at any rate, uh, is one of the doctors who has really pioneered the study of this, at least in the modern era, and uh, has developed the Hare Psychopath Checklist, which grades people on a, a scale. And I believe the scale goes from zero to 40, and any score 30 or higher can be clinically diagnosed as psychopathic. And of course, with any such checklist or scale, it is going to be arbitrary to a certain degree. And as even Hare would argue, everyone exhibits certain aspects and certain tendencies that could be classified as psycho psychopathic. It's the question of looking at the whole individual and the way that starts. Um, but uh, people like 
Dr. Hare, Martha Stout, others, assert that there really is a actual cognitive uh, difference that can be even measured. Um, I, again, this is all controversial. There are people who would debate this, but that can be measured in the way that um, the the mind of a psychopath functions being completely different. And essentially, some of the core characteristics of that, that mind is that the psychopath does not have the ability to to have any empathy whatsoever with another human being. In fact, to regard a human being as, as anything other than an object to be manipulated, essentially. That, that's sort of the core defining characteristic of psychopathy, is that there is, there is no, no, no hint of conscience or emotion or empathy um, for other human beings. And that's, that's, a, that's something that's so bizarre, so alien, that it's difficult for people to wrap their mind around. As uh, Martha Stout wrote in um, her book, which I cite in my article on projections of the psychopath, and I can't remember the name, I believe it's called The Sociopath Next Door. And as she writes um, quite memorably in that book, most of us would feel guilty stealing the last piece of cake from the kitchen. Oh, you know, it, I, I'm going to eat the last piece of cake and I'm not going to tell the other family members about it. We would feel somewhat guilty about something like that. But the psychopath could murder someone in cold blood and not bat an eyelash about it, or maybe only get angry because the, the person's blood spattered their nice suit or something like that. That is the, the level of reptilian brain thinking that um, these, these people exhibit. And that is so... We, I think most non-psychopaths, have such a hard time believing that because we don't want to even conceive of something like that. Um, but having said that, if these people exist, and also there are some, again, the terminology, there's much debate and discussion about this, but I, I go with the terminology to say the psychopaths are the people who are born with that cognitive impairment, who have that, that particular brain structure that um, creates that condition. But there are sociopaths who are not necessarily born as psychopaths in the same way, but can be conditioned into acting essentially more like psychopaths because they, ha um, because they have been traumatized themselves, because they've grown up in that structure, because there are certain incentives put in place, because of a number of factors, presumably. But some people are more prone to essentially acting in psychopathic ways simply because they are placed in a system that that creates the conditions which incentivizes them to act in those ways. So that, to me, takes this problem of psychopathy, which in and of itself I think is a problem. If there are people who truly look at other human beings as nothing other than objects to be manipulated for their own gain, then that has some very serious ramifications about the types of people who are going, who, who, who want to um, to attain positions of power over other people. As has been observed many times, the, the person you least want to be ruled over is someone who really wants to rule over you. <laughs> you don't want politicians who really want power to be politicians, mm, right? Exactly. But those are the types of people who are attracted to those positions. Not just politicians, but police officers or people who are able to exert power over other people. Um, and unfortunately, of course, that becomes a magnet for these types of psychopaths. But it gets even worse when you think about the idea that these psychopaths are then institutionally shaping, whether it be a police force or a government or a, a corporation, shaping that institution in their own image, uh, as in to make it 
actually seem more psychopathic or to incentivize psychopathic ideas or activities. And in fact, um, there is uh, a 2000, I think it's a 2003 documentary called The Corporation, um, which people should check out if they haven't. And in that documentary, they talk, for example, to Dr. Hare, who psycho psychoanalyzes, clinically diagnoses the idea of corporations as they have developed and as the legal structure around them have developed in the, at least in, say, the 20th, 20th, 21st century American context, um, as, as psychopathic institutions. You could d d clinically diagnose a a corporation in the way that it acts in the world as being psychopathic because of its complete lack of empathy or concern for other human beings, its man, uh, manipulative lying and deception, it's, etc. You could go down the hair checklist and there are a number of corporations that would probably classify, you could classify as psychopathic. Well, what does that mean to have a, a corporation that is a psychopath? Or what about a government or a police force or something like that? Um, well, uh, Essentially, it means that people who are not willing to act in cold-blooded, ruthless ways will not excel in those, in that structure, whether it be a corporation or a government. And that means that the the cream rises to the top. Well, the cream of this psychopathic system are the sociopaths and psychopaths who are most able to ex uh, to act in those cold-blooded ways. And that's really the the the, the most chilling part of this. It, it provides an explanation for why the cacistocracy exists. Why is it that it's not just generally some bumbling fools who get into positions of power? Because at least at that rate, if, you're, if they're just dumb, ignorant, bumbling fools, you would expect that sometimes they would, they would err, err on the right side. Oops, we got it wrong, and well, you know, that turned out pretty good, actually. But it's, it tends to be. Um, this sort of race to the race to the bottom, as it were, in terms of depravity and uh, the types of exploitation and uh, oppression of the average person, we see uh, this degradation that's going on, which is explained by the fact that, well, if there are literal psychopaths and sociopaths in positions of power creating institutions which are designed to prey upon the general public for the benefit of this elite few, well, that would go some way towards explaining the nature of the problem that we're facing. Mm. And you have also shown how they then are using psychology as a weapon against the population. How have they been doing that? Uh, you, you write about diagnosis called anarchia and drapetomania. Yeah. Can you please tell about that? That's bizarre. It's so ridiculous um, as to be almost unbelievable. So don't take my word for it. Please go look it up. But uh, yes, as it turns out, this is this is part of the background to this story. The uh, Again, for people who have never thought about this, how psychology uh, could be weaponized against the public. Well, what does that mean? Well, we could look to history for examples of that. And so I cite the example of Benjamin Rush, known as the founder of American psychiatry, the founding father of American psychiatry, um, who was a very influential um, psychiatrist, um, uh, or whatever the designation was at the time, but what we would understand today as psychiatry, there in a couple of hundred years ago in America, who came up with some very bizarre ideas, um, one of which um, was this idea of anarchia, which um, is defined as a type of madness which denotes, quote, an, ex an excess of the passion for liberty, which, quote, could not be removed by reason, 
nor restrained by government, and threatened to render abortive the goodness of heaven to the United States. So literally, uh, and of course, this was this was in the context of that post-revolutionary period after the, inst- the the Constitution of the United States was adopted, and you start having these these rebellions of the this revolutionary. Uh, the, these colonies that revolt, revolted against the biggest empire in the planet at that time, the British Empire, and they won their liberty, and then they're getting taxed and and uh, 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 directed by Washington, literally George Washington, and they start to rebel, Shays' Rebellion and other th- such things. And so Benjamin Rush comes along to diagnose those people uh, with anarchia. They have an excess of the passion for liberty. Yes, liberty, the passion for liberty is a good thing and it's what made America a country and all of that, but, ooh, not too much. You know, oh, you, you want to go too far and deny the goodness of heaven to the United States or whatever way he phrased it. Um, so it goes to show uh, how, how th- these diagnoses can be uh, deployed against the population. And it was, that idea was picked up by one of his uh, apprentices, uh, Samuel Cartwright, who later on came up with this idea of drapedomania, which was the disease causing Negroes, slaves, to run away. And uh, he writes, uh, the cause in the most of cases that induces the Negro to run away from service is as much a disease of the mind as any other species of mental alienation, and much more curable as a general rule. With the advantages of proper medical advice strictly followed, this troublesome practice that many Negroes have of running away can be almost entirely prevented, although the slaves be located on the borders of a free state within a stone's throw of the abolitionists. So, again, really taking that mantle from Benjamin Rush and running with it, well, if anarchia is an excess of the, the passion for liberty, drapedomania, why would a slave, why would a slave want to run away from their slave master. Why could they, uh, they must be mentally ill and we need to cure them so that they don't try to run away. And luckily it's, it's good that we have these historical examples because we can look at that thing from 200 years ago and say, that is, that is crazy. The people who were coming up with these ideas of anarchia and drapedomania are the crazy ones. And uh, no one today would would accept or believe in a diagnosis like that. But do we have recent? Yeah, do we have recent examples? But today we do have oppositional defiant disorder (ODD), which has been added to the DSM, which is now the uh, the Bible of psychiatry that's used specifically by the American Psychiatric Association, but it's used around the world and referred to around the world, and and defines all of these various mental diseases that can't, cannot in any way be described or, or defined or measured in, in anything like any sort of normal health sense. Um, it's always just a, a, a subjective determination of an individual therapist, essentially. And in this case, oppositional defiant disorder is essentially anarchia for the 21st century. It's, well, these you know, is a, a child who exerts a little bit too much uh, will uh, of his own against a parental or teacher authority. Uh, he probably has a problem. It's it's ODD, I tell you. And unfortunately, as is increasingly common, they do have 
medication for that. It's certainly in America. It is becoming a known phenomenon, the over-medication of children with Ritalin and other drugs to keep them pliant and sedated, essentially, so that they will they will be more pliant, indoctrinated um, learners, learners in the indoctrination system that they're putting them through. Because I think, actually, uh, uh, there, there's an incredibly important quote um, that I'm going to butcher here about uh, how it's a, it's a sign it's a sign of good good health to to not be adjusted to a sick society. <laughs> I've got that quote all completely wrong. But the point is, if you are living in a in a system that is anti-human, that is strange, that is against our human nature, then yes, we should feel bad about that. We should uh, it, it should not sit right with us. We should be we should not function well in such a system. So I think the children who are going through, say, the indoctrination system and who are uh, bucking against that system and do not and, and feel that they do, they're, they're, they're stuck in a system that they don't like, that, that seems to me normal human behavior. And unfortunately, that is being taken, that is being abnormalized, pathologized, and then prescribed, uh, prescribed away with mind-altering drugs. And that, again, is exactly how this weaponization of psychology can function on the, on the most direct level. Um, essentially, any sort of activity that, or, or even state of, state of being or thinking that goes against whatever the ruling elite would have uh, the people believe or think will be essentially, cr a diagnosis will be created and uh, a medicine will be delivered to try to stop people from thinking in those ways. Hej, kära lytter. Därsom du liker arbetet vi gör, hoppas vi att du lytter extra gott efter nu. Vi har ingen firma som sponsrar oss, vi har ingen pressstötte och vi är därför helt avhängiga av att våra lyttere hjälper oss. Så, därsom vi är värdefulla för dig, hoppas vi att du kan ge något tillbaka. Du kan stötta oss ekonomiskt via att bli medlem av Antiantepodden Pustrum. Det är vårt eget lilla sociala nätverk. Som medlem kan du se video av våra intervjuer samt att du blir en del av ett unikt fällskap. Mer information finner du på antiantepodden.com. Mm, yeah, and we also have more recent examples uh, during the covid situation. There was a guy called Dr. Binder uh, that got a diagnosis that doesn't exist. Can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, this is a story that um, you'll forgive the, uh, the pun, but it, it's an insane story. Um, but yes, so for people who, who don't know about this, um, Thomas Binder um, is a, uh, I, I better read this so that I don't get the details wrong, but oh, uh, he was a cardiologist who had been working in a private practice in Switzerland for 24 years. So not, uh, not someone who had ever had any sort of arrest record. He had never had any incidents with the police. He had never had any sort of incidents with authority whatsoever. He was a practicing cardiologist um, of 24 years uh, uh, practice. And in 2020, in fact, in February of 2020, at the start of the, the hysteria, um, Dr. Binder started advocating for ethics and science in, in medicine. What happened to the most basic practices that we've held to throughout our entire, our entire lives, our entire profession has been structured around these. And so he started calling out the idea of 
medical restrictions and mandates and flawed PCR testing and just pointing out the scientific absurdities that were starting to be normalized at that point. Um, on his personal website and on social media, he wasn't making some sort of campaign about it per se, but he was making these statements on social media. And apparently someone um, got so offended by this that they reported him to, uh, to, the, to the police. At any rate, what ended up happening is 60, 60, 60 armed police officers, including 20 members of the uh, Swiss anti-terrorism unit, Argus, ended up showing up at his practice on Easter Sunday in order to arrest him. And they did arrest him and they took him in and held him against his will, obviously, until such time as he could be mentally, mentally uh, diagnosed. And the diagnosis that came in um, after this, this craziness was literally, as was written on one of his forms, was Corona insanity, which of course is not an official diagnosis, but uh, I guess they can just write this. So people who even practicing cardiologists, scientists, people of repute, people who have had no problem whatsoever in the system whatsoever up to this point, if they so much as question the scientific validity of some of the things that are going on can be instantly diagnosed with a clinical condition that doesn't exist and force medicated, which was what happened in Dr. Binder's situation. He was either going to be forcibly confined against his will at a psychiatric institution, or he would have to take certain medications that were prescribed to him. This should be worrying to everyone because again, if it can happen to a, a cardiologist who has, has spent a quarter of a century in private practice, minding his own business and no problems with, uh, with authority, and suddenly he makes some mild criticisms on social media and he gets literally diagnosed with a form of insanity that they just make up on the spot. That is an incredibly chilling power. And of course, that's the point, I think. Stories like what happened to talk Dr. Binder are meant to be warnings to other people not to cross that line. If it can happen to him, you better believe we could send the anti-terrorism unit for you. Yeah, and, and the governments are becoming increasingly aggressive towards people who don't go along with the narrative, aren't they? Like there's something now called a domestic terrorist. What is that really? Yes, exactly right. And, I, I, you know, it's a good point to bring this into that, the conversation because I think it is, it is a similar phenomenon. Just as corona insanity, for example, can be made up to simply describe someone who has scientific questions about the validity of what they're being told. Um, domestic terrorism, domestic extremism can be used as a catch-all for anyone who has problems with the government as it exists. And that has, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's one of the things that we are told is a democratic ideal and this is what makes democracy great is that everyone has their own opinion and they can advocate for anything other than violence or, you know, some sort of actual killing or something like that. But no, if you're just debating ideas, well, then everyone gets their say and everyone can have their idea. And then you can vote. Your your uh, wonderful responsibility is to vote for the right person. Well, I have things to say about that. But at any rate, that's the ideal that supposedly we are giving and, and inst instilled in us uh, through the indoctrination system that we grow up in. And yet, 
isn't that exactly what is now being demonized? Oh yeah, okay, but not those ideas. Those are those ideas are so horrible they can't even be entertained. And what are those ideas? The 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 window for this keeps shifting. Of course, the entirety of the homeland security state that arose in the wake of 9-11 in the United States and really the knock-on effects that that had on governments around the world, even here in Japan where I am, I'm sure um, in, in Norway and other places as well, it, it has affected governments around the world. And the point of, of that system really, I think, was to introduce this concept of, look, here are people that are so horrible, so evil that we can't even, they, they can't be seen as as military combatants, they're not fighters, they're just horrible, evil people, and we deserve to be able to torture them and do whatever we have to in order to stop them from doing these horrible things. But now that that idea has been instituted and literally right in, laid into the legal and institutional framework of so many different governments, now that designation of terrorist can be used as a weapon itself. And now that label can be applied to people who are Al-Qaeda sworn allegiance to uh, uh, Osama? No, uh, I'm an Al-Zawahiri? Uh, no, uh, well, what, whatever character they say is in charge of Al-Qaeda these days. At any rate, is that what this label is being applied to? No, of course not. Now it's people who disagree with the government, who dissent from what the government is, is trying to institute. Well, again, isn't that part of what democracy is about? So... It's an interesting, it, 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 there is certainly a, a parallel that is going on. The public has essentially been trained and the public mind has been manipulated into a deception whereby this term terrorism is employed and everyone is shown what this means and what it looks like. And then that label is applied to essentially anything that the powers that shouldn't be don't like. Hmm. Is this only in the Western countries or is it just as bad in Japan, for instance? Yes, unfortunately, Japan is no exception to the the overall trend. I think this truly is a global trend. And of course, it takes very different forms in different places. But um, for example, um, as an example of that spread of the, the homeland security mentality and the, the terrorist, we must protect ourselves from the terrorist idea that was used to justify the institution of this this dragnet, essentially, on all of humanity, that has been implemented quite thoroughly in Japan in ways that are quite obvious to anyone entering Japan, because uh, when you enter Japan as a foreigner, you will be fingerprinted and digitally photographed um, as, of course, just keeping us safe from the terrorists. Of course, I'm not sure if there has ever even been the, the, the suggestion that this process of fingerprinting and photographing every single person who comes into the country like a criminal has done so much as prevent a single terrorist from entering the country. I can't think in the, in the 15 years or so that this system has been in place, I can't think of a single example that's been cited by the government um, to justify this. But at any rate, now people have been trained and indoctrinated um, into that, and the Japanese government has been doing that for a decade and a half. Um, and there are, there are parallel examples all around the world. And I think, again, we can start to see that through the auspices of things like the World Health Organization, which George Chisholm was the first director general of, these types of programs, the strategic mental health planning that were being gamed out by the Tavistock Institute uh, chief, uh, uh, Colonel Reese, 
the British military, um, can be essentially spread out through the world. And of course, it always comes in the form of feel-good platitudes about mental health and caring and giving, but it's generally there is a much darker side to all of this, because the same powers that allow mental health professionals to come in and and cure people, or at least make them feel better with by dispensing the appropriate medications, are the same powers that can be used to label someone as with corona insanity, or whatever else they come up with, the uh, the drapedomania or the anarchia of the 21st century. Hmm. So it's a good way to actually even detain people and say, oh, you can't be out because you're insane, or, yeah, to remove the opposition. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And there are there again there is historical parallels and historical examples of that that we can point to. And one that you don't even have to go out on some strange conspiratorial um branch in order to to engage in that. You can just look at say the New York Times from the 1980s. I start the series off by citing a rather voluminous um several thousand word uh article that appeared in the New York Times uh, in 1983 by Dr. Walter Reich under the headline, The World of Soviet Psychiatry, in which Dr. Walter Reich does a good job, I think, of at least laying out the problem of Soviet psychiatry, which infamously had uh, a, a, spe a specific type of um, uh, schizophrenia di diagnosis called sluggish schizophrenia that they used to diagnose and to incarcerate, essentially, um, uh, uh, political dissidents. And it was well known that the Soviets used and employed this technique. They essentially said, if you're protesting against the wonderful Soviet regime, you're crazy. We'll call you a sluggish schizophrenic and throw you in a psychiatric institution. And in the 1970s, 1980s, that started to become a, a pressure point in the Cold War, essentially. Um, the West could use it as an easy propaganda victory. Look at what they're doing to their political dissidents. They're throwing them in psychiatric institutions, giving them false diagnoses. And you know what? Dr. Reich and the other people who were pointing that out were right. The Soviets really were doing that. And that was a problem. And they were forced medicating people and, and confining people against their will, using it as a convenient diagnosis to put political dissidents behind behind bars or at least in uh, sealed uh, institutions at convenient times where they should they could have been protesting against cer certain key events. So, yes, that was going on. But that's exactly the, the exact same powers that the Soviets were using there can and as we are seeing is being used by western governments as well. But why do you think people don't see through this? Why do people go along with like the covid narrative and I mean, in Norway, most people were really aggressive towards the so-called uh, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers. Yeah. They were really yeah. aggressive and it was really unpleasant and we didn't get invited to family parties and so on. So, so why are people going along with this? I think there are a number of factors and different factors play on different people. Um, for example, as we talked about before, what happened to Dr. Binder in Switzerland is meant as a sort of warning for people even people who are inclined to have their questions and to wonder about, is this really valid? And what's the basis for this? To let them know, you better shut up. Don't post that to social media. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it with your friends because you might end up with a corona insanity diagnosis. So that is the chilling effect of those types of stories. Um, and, but unfortunately, I, I, I think that's only a small segment of the population. People who are inclined to have those types of questions, a lot of people 
either don't have those questions or in fact put up mental barriers to those types of questions to the point where they aggressively defend their ideological viewpoint by demonizing other people and that's exactly what you are talking about there people who have completely distanced themselves and won't talk to even family members because you have those crazy ideas um i think what accounts for that to some extent goes to that what we talked about with the the indoctrination system and i can speak to the power of that um growing up in the canadian uh schooling system um whereby the idea that government is not ultimately there uh as a benevolent force to, uh, that is working uh, for your benefit uh, is so foreign to to the Canadian mindset that really is inculcated in the schooling system that most people I think never even think to question it let alone actually successfully question it and it's a very very difficult thing to question because I, I think part of what makes it unfortunately the momentum or the 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 the, the inertia is on the side of the status quo, i.e. the system as it exists. Because if you are to truly look at these things, and if you really do come to the conclusion, there really is a cacistocracy, a, or a rule by the worst, and there really is a psychopathic or sociopathic or otherwise warped um, elitist class that is conspiring against the public. If you genuinely believe those things, well, you can't just sit there on your hands and just go, oh, okay, well, I, I guess that's how the world works. No, you have to do something about that. And most people are so overwhelmed and so frightened by that prospect that it's much, much safer to simply listen to what you're hearing from all of these authority figures that those people who are saying that, they're crazy. And I think that puts the mental block in place so that most people don't, don't want, fundamentally don't want to challenge that cocoon that they're living in. Um, there is a question to be asked then, why do some people question? Why, what, what is it that differentiates those people who end up questioning and really becoming those types of dissidents in the eyes of the, uh, the, the power structure? What does make them different? And unfortunately, I don't have the, I don't have the simple bullet point answer for that, but I bet you that that is something that has been carefully studied over the decades. Um, it's a, a point that bears making in this conversation is that a lot of psychological studies that have been done and a lot of research is for the purpose ultimately of being able to better manipulate the, the, the public mind and to better understand what makes people buck against the system, for example, and how to make them more pliant within that system. Um, of course, that is the end goal of a lot of this research, whether or not the individual researchers engaged in individual things um, along those lines know it or not. I think that is part of what's going on. But that does lead us to the the more hopeful side of this, which are some of the solutions that we could offer towards this, if you want to get into that. Yes, please. That would be very good. Yes. So how do we solve this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is really the question. And I... I won't say that there's some sort of simple silver bullet solution to this that will make all of these problems go away, but there are things that we can look to that I have talked about in the past. So, for example, if people are interested in this, they could go to my website and, uh, for example, uh, I, I had a conversation with researcher Ian Davis um, a couple of years ago on acceptance of and commitment to freedom. And we were talking specifically about a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy 
that is designed to get people to move away from the the mindset of falling into the traps of whatever problems that they are dealing with mentally and the types of things that make people, that demoralize people, demotivate people, keep them trapped in the same problems that they're having. It's a type of behavioral cognitive therapy um, that was developed in the 1980s um, by uh, a researcher whose name I'm going to forget, Professor Stephen C. Hayes. And so we talked about that as a potential that um, that creates uh, a space for people to start becoming mindful of their own habits of thought and how they can start moving towards the types of things that they want in this life, the, the way that they, they think, they can start directing their thoughts more consciously towards that, that will start to shape the way they actually behave in the real world. It might sound somewhat airy-fairy or something, but no, there's real actual science behind it, and I, I hope people would check out that conversation if they're interested. I've also talked to researcher Davi Barker about authoritarian sociopathy, um, which is an interesting book that's not only looking at the sort of the ways that people can be, and and the various psychological um, uh, uh, tests that have shown that people are uh, pliant and manipulatable in a number of ways. I mean, there are some some tests that are quite quite famous or infamous, depending how you look at it. The the Ash conformity experiment, for example, whereby if you show a number of people uh, a, a few a few different lines on a piece of paper, and um, they are all exactly the same size. But you are in a room and you're asked to say which is the bigger one. And everyone says, oh, line two is the biggest line. Line two, line two, line two. And it gets to you and you look around and you say, uh, line two. Uh, most people will go with the group decision, even though, unbeknownst to the people in the Ash Conformity experiment, all of those other people saying it's line two, line two is the bigger one. Those are actors in the study. And um, it turns out that most people, most of the time, will bow to the group pressure of conformity. And in their own interviews after the Ash Conformity experiment, they will say, I genuinely believed it must be bigger because I must not be seeing something that everyone else is seeing. So we can be manipulated in a number of different ways. But there are ways that we can actually use this, these, uh, this information to... Uh, form defenses against that type of um, that kind of pressure, and also to to actually shape a different way forward. And that's something that I point f to specifically in the fourth article of this four article series on escaping the madhouse, where I look at the uh, the Milgram experiment um, from a different perspective. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the Milgram experiment. It's probably the most famous psychological experiment of the 20th century. But essentially, Stanley Milgram. Um, was a researcher who would take uh, volunteers from a wide swath of uh, the community, from housewives to students to business workers to business owners and anyone else, and would put them through a, a, a type of task where they would come in and they were told that they were working on the problem of memory and how to improve people's memory. So uh, there were two people that would come and they would be randomly assigned to be a teacher or a learner in this experiment. And um, the teacher would have to read questions to the learner and the uh, learner would have to memorize certain things and then answer the questions. And if they got the question wrong, the teacher would then have to correct this behavior with an electric shock. And starting out with a mild shock and working up to a 
a, a potentially lethal shock of 450 volts or something. And they were even told that, right? So this is lethal. Right, exactly. They were told that this was potentially lethal or would, uh, in various ways, that was um, made apparent to them. Um, now, the trick of this is that in this experiment, again, the, uh, the, the actual person being experimented on was always randomly assigned the role of the teacher. The learner was a confederate, a, an actor in this study. And um, essentially, the whole thing was a setup. There were no actual shocks being delivered, but the person believed that they were delivering shocks. Um, and the famous, famous result of this experiment that gets widely talked about is that Milgram found that up to whatever it was, 90% or something like that, of people would go up, up to a potentially lethal shock voltage um, simply on the say-so, the orders of the experiment, the experimenter, um, who's just has a few different lines that they are they're essentially reading from a script of the experiment requires that you continue or something along those lines and most people would continue right up to what they believed was potentially a fatal level of shock and some people would push back on this and say no you know it was just one experiment it was just, it wasn't just one experiment milgram conducted the experiment many 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 times himself and it's been replicated many many times in many countries around the world this isn't a specifically american phenomenon although milgram was an american researcher but it was it's been done in many countries around the world in many contexts even uh, for people who say, well, yeah, but these these people know that it's just a game and that there's not real electric shocks. Well, one of the um, variations of this experiment that's been done involved delivering real electric shocks to puppies um, that were wired up for electric shocks in, in one of the permutations of this. So people knew that they were delivering real electric shocks. And it, in that experiment, most people, again, most of the people actually did deliver the shocks, including, I believe, 100% of the women in the study. It was only 90% of the men or something, but 100% of the women would literally shock the puppies. Um, anyway, uh, just to say that this is a real experiment, but the part of the experiment that is never highlighted, never talked about, or very, very rarely, is that that wasn't really Milgram's conclusive finding. That was his original study and he originally wrote about that and talked about it. But as I say, he repeated that experiment many times under many different um, uh, laboratory setups. Um, for example, sometimes co conducting this on Yale campus, you know, using a an experimenter dressed up in the lab coat and looking with a clipboard and looking very experimental, etc. Sometimes in a rundown old office building in the middle of downtown off campus, uh, uh, just someone just dressed normally, not in a lab coat, etc., etc., trying it under many different circumstances. And what was found is that there, the experimental setup greatly determined the compliance level of these teachers in this experiment, uh, to the point where, um, for example, if if it was being conducted off campus in this ratty, rundown old office building instead of on the prestigious Yale campus, uh, most uh, there would be a significant drop in the number of people who would follow the experimenter's orders. Um, or, and here's, the, I think, probably the, the most telling one, uh, when the study was conducted so that the person who was the teacher could watch someone doing the experiment before them and could watch another person being the teacher, and that person before them actually stopped the experiment and said, I'm not going to do this, then... Uh, compliance level of those teachers who saw that happen dropped from 90% or whatever it was to something like 
almost everyone would actually stop the experiment and would not proceed if they had seen someone reject it beforehand. And I think that is a very important psychological insight. I think that when we see uh, resistance modeled, when we see someone bucking back against the system, saying no, standing up for what they believe is right, other people will be more likely to do that thing, to stop, to, to say, no, I will not participate in this. I think we need models of resistance and we need people, we need to see people um, actually uh, saying no, of resisting, bucking the system. And that is an insight that's so powerful and so important as I, for example, I give an example of a, uh, of the Romanian revolution and the part uh, that, that, that that modeling of resistance might have played in, in what ultimately resulted there. But um, I, I think this is an insight that's also understood by the, the powers that shouldn't be. And I, I often go back to a, uh, a protest that was shaping up something in 2009, 2010 perhaps, in the United States as a protest against the invasive naked body scanners that they were implementing in airports at that point um, as part of the TSA screening process for passengers. Um, and there was um, quite a bit of resistance to that um, when it was first introduced. Interestingly, not so much anymore. But um, as part of that resistance, there was a, uh, there was a mass protest that was being planned uh, called the opt-out day which was planned for the the peak travel season in the United States in Thanksgiving. Everyone's flying home to visit their family. And the idea was uh, a, a bunch of people, a lot of people were going to say, no, I'm not going to do the scanner. You're going to have to, I'm going to opt out. You're going to have to pat me down physically. And we're going to have to take the time to do that. And if one or two people do that, that's not a big deal. In fact, maybe that works in the in the favor of the TSA and the people who um, want compliance because you're making an example. Oh, look at these weirdos doing this thing. But if dozens, hundreds, thousands of people start doing that at a busy airport on peak travel day and holding up lines for hours and hours and people are seeing what is happening and seeing person after person after person opting out, that would very, very radically change people's perception of what's going on and whether or not they should comply with what's going on, which is exactly why wouldn't you know it, when opt-out day came, the TSA just let people go through. They didn't even ask them to go through the scanners. They just said, yeah, just go through, just go through. They didn't allow them the chance. So they knew about the... Exactly. They didn't allow them the chance to model resistance because I think they know that when people see resistance, they will start to act that resistance for themselves. So I think that's an incredibly important thing that we should be taking into account. If we are concerned about these things, you should know, however insignificant your particular act of defiance is on whatever particular day with whatever, whatever it is that you're being asked to do, at any rate, you don't know who's going to see that act of defiance and what effect that's going to have on them and then how they might act enact that in the real world and then people who see them might enact that thing. And that that is the type of ripple effect that hopefully we can start introducing into the world by seemingly trivial acts of defiance uh, are not so trivial after all, I think. Mm. And there are many, many things now happening with the World Health Organization and, and the pandemic uh, treaty and all that. Do you see a way that we can protest what is going on there right now? 
I think so. And there are a number of ways that that can manifest. One of which is simply to, to as I said, model this, uh, the behavior of normalizing the talk about this. Because most people living in their bubble have absolutely no idea what's going on at that level in World Health Organization and have no idea what is happening. And so I think introducing that into conversation and, and letting that idea um, be known that, oh, there are things going on in terms of creation of pandemic treaties that will undermine national sovereignty with regards to health health sovereignty and such things. Uh, at any rate, people should know that that is a thing and should see other people talking about it and being concerned about it, which, again, might activate them to at least understand that there is a problem there. But beyond that, um, yes, I think uh, if people are politically motivated and see some sort of political if not solution, at least roadblock that can be placed to this. Um, there are a number of political movements that are starting now. And in the United States, for example, I saw even congressmen were holding a, uh, a, uh, a press conference on the steps of the U.S. Capitol about the possibility of exiting the World Health Organization, which is not something that I think politicians were rallying around previously, but now, now they are because politicians love to get out in front of a parade and, and think that they're they're leading it. So great. Okay. So there's some, now there's political momentum that's being introduced to the political conversation. There could be political campaigns around that. Personally, I'm not so interested in politics as a real solution to the problems we're facing. Perhaps it can work as a roadblock or a, a hindrance, or perhaps we can derail or at least postpone this World Health Organization agenda through the political process. And if so, great. I'm, I'm never going to tell people to not do something that they think is effective. But I think more to the point, I think we have to start taking responsibility for and modeling responsibility for our own health decisions. And the idea that it is, in many countries, uh, illegal to contract with a doctor directly for the services that the doctor orders uh, is so it's it's so normalized that people don't realize how insane it is. But the idea, yes, that you need the government to certify and approve this doctor who then must follow certain medical protocols in order to maintain their license, which means that they have to prescribe certain things in certain situations, even if that doctor believes that it's not actually the best um, uh, way to help people. It, it's, in, it's insanity. And uh, growing up in Canada with the Canadian health system, like it or lump it, there is the Canadian government-supplied healthcare, essentially, and Canadians love it. Yes, yes, we get healthcare provided to us by the government because we're so much better than those Americans with their private medical practice. Well, yeah, there are a lot of strings that come attached with that, aren't there? So the idea of forming private medical associations where members can sign up and agree to to interact and transact with doctors directly that are part of that, forming those types of groups, I think is an incredibly potentially powerful way forward. And well, you, you will have to research your own local laws wherever you happen to be listening to this conversation to find out what type of legal trouble that might cause. But again, if people don't start standing up and enacting these types of things, then other people are never going to see them and they're never going to push on these, um, these ideas and health sovereignty will eventually be eroded and placed in the hands of people like the George Chisholm's of the world who want to mo 
openly talk about how they want to indoctrinate and mold your mind to make you more pliant and pliable and move you past this idea that there is good and evil in the world. Uh, again, just craziness that people need to read for themselves. But those are the t that's the mentality of the type of people that are stewarding over the system right now. And mm. I think we need to be pushing back against that. Yeah, I agree. And, and in my own life, I think to realize that there is something called good and evil and not everyone is going to be nice with you. It's actually a very important realization. And it's, uh, it's the start of a recovery journey in your own life, even to understand who is on your side and who is not. So, yeah, so maybe a good place to start to, to realize there is good and evil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's always a good a, a good tactic when it comes to this type of thing. If if they are so concerned about getting you to not think of something or to, to change your viewpoint on something, you have to wonder why. <laughs> why is the idea of morality such a, a, a roadblock for people of, of the ilk of George Chisholm? It's an interesting question to ponder. Even if, you, even if you think you might agree with him, just think about why he is so interested in trying to undermine your basic conception of morality. Mm, exactly. And some people even say, if you see evil in someone else, then you're projecting your own evil. If you didn't have that evil in you, you wouldn't see it in others. That's crazy making, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely it is. It's gaslighting and it is victim blaming. Because, of course, people who have experienced real evil from real psychopaths or others, not every evil person is a psychopath, but at any rate, um, people who have experienced evil and point that out, then being called, well, it must be your evil that's being reflected. That's obviously a type of gaslighting that I would say evil people would inflict on on vulnerable or malleable people. Um, and it is kind of it is kind of like what is often used to help pathologize conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. If you are seeing conspiracies everywhere, it's because you're a deceptive person and you tend to lie and conspire and have plots and schemes. And so now you're projecting that onto other people. Yeah. No, maybe I just don't like being uh, lied to, deceived and manipulated by people who presume to rule over me. <laughs> but apparently that's not an option for people who want to pathologize conspiracy mindset. No, and as long as you are gaslit and you put the attention on yourself, it's like, maybe I am a little bit, you know, then you forget about them and they can do whatever they want. So it's important that you stand your ground and you see what you see and you insist on what you see, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the Antiantipoden again. And uh, if you want to read more, you can go to CorbettReport.com then you will find this series and many, many other things. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate this talk. Tusen takk for at du har lyttet til Antiantipoden. Du finner mer information om oss samt en oversikt over alle våre episoder på antiantipoden.com.